Okay, recording. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Today we're going to focus on the 2019 novel coronavirus. This information that I'm going to share is from guideline documents by the Transplantation Society, the American Society of Transplantation, and CDC. In terms of nomenclature, the virus is called 2019 novel coronavirus, or SARS-CoV-2. The disease is coronavirus disease 2019, or COVID-19. This virus is different than the typical four seasonal coronaviruses that we normally see that circulate in humans. These are the ones that are on the multiplex panels, and when we check a nasopharyngeal swab or a BAL specimen, and we're concerned that our patient might have a respiratory viral infection and it comes back as coronavirus positive, that's the normal four seasonal coronavirus strains that we see. They're called HKU1, OC43, NL63, and 229E. These are not the SARS-CoV-2, and the testing that we do from those panels, if it's positive, your patient does not have SARS-CoV. They have one of those ones. The patient will usually have a URI, but sometimes they can even have a lower respiratory tract infection or sometimes a bacterial superinfection of either a URI or a lower respiratory tract viral infection. Now, there are two other bad coronaviruses. There's SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV, and they have uh, their own history, and we haven't seen SARS-CoV in a long time. MERS-CoV, uh, typically in the Middle East, as the name suggests, Middle East Respiratory Virus, and that one is still puttering along in parts of the Middle East, but um, there's usually a pretty good history of exposure to that part of the world. Now, COVID-19, the one that we're seeing now in Asia and uh, at various places around the world, has 80% homology to SARS-CoV. So perhaps that's part of the explanation why we're seeing such severe disease happen in some people. Now, a little bit of the history of the virus. It's associated with uh, Hubei province initially, and the disease seems to have started sometime in December of 2019. Since then, it's spread across China and to multiple other countries. There are reported to be about 77,000 cases in mainland China and nearly 2,000 cases outside of China and almost 2,500 associated deaths worldwide. There are 53 cases within the U.S. So far, no deaths in the U.S. due to this disease. Spread appears to be person-to-person and occurs mainly by respiratory transmission. Symptoms occur within 2 to 14 days after exposure, and when the symptoms do develop, they're generally fever, cough, shortness of breath, and then in patients that are sick enough to be in the hospital, oftentimes there's radiographic abnormalities of lower respiratory tract infection. 
older adults and people with underlying health conditions or a compromised immune system, as would be an issue in the transplant population, might be at greater risk for severe illness from this virus. Now, the current mortality rate in China is about 2.9% of laboratory-confirmed cases. But there's really a lot of missing data about mild and asymptomatic infections. So the 2.9% mortality is for laboratory-confirmed cases. In terms of risk factors for doing poorly, I mentioned the uh, older adults and the underlying health conditions. And lymphocyte count was something that was observed in patients that required ICU care. They tended to have a lower lymphocyte count. Now, it's unclear if the virus itself, a viral infection, causes the lymphopenia or if the lymphopenia exists and that is a risk for developing the viral infections. We know that with many respiratory viral infections, lymphopenia is a risk factor, and that is, of course, an issue in bone marrow transplant patients, patients with hematological malignancies, patients with uh, solid organ transplantation, and patients with uh, uh, other conditions that cause them to have low lymphocytes counts. Um, It's been suggested that people that have lymphopenia whether it is as a consequence of the infection or as a risk factor for developing the infections, should be carefully monitored for respiratory decline. So a decision may need to be made to admit such a patient to the hospital to observe them closely and to have pulse oximetry measure their oxygenation status so that uh, if they decline, they can get the kind of care that they need. Now, epidemiologically, it's also been noted that patients that had cardiovascular illness, they were overrepresented in the ICU population of patients with this disease. So one of the questions is, how will the infection impact transplant recipient? A lot of the information that we use here is derived from other infections and uh, uh, extrapolated, so do take this with a grain of salt. However, it's likely that the inoculum size needed to cause infection in an immunocompromised patient, such as a transplant recipient, will be lower than in an otherwise non-immunocompromised patient. It's also likely that the risk for progression to lower respiratory tract infection will be higher in immunocompromised patients, such as transplant recipients. And it's also possible that the viral burden and viral shedding will be higher in those patients, perhaps leading to transmission amongst other immunocompromised patients that they are near in clinics or in hospitals and then also to healthcare workers. So what can be done? I think right now we're feeling our way, but there's some basics that really need to be underlined and exclamation pointed, and that's that um, infection control, infection prevention, does not stop because you have a new virus. Let's take, for example, a patient with symptoms that could be consistent with COVID-19, somebody that has fevers, respiratory symptoms, and they had known exposure to somebody with the infection or were in an area where there's community transmission. That person really needs to communicate that information to their doctor or their nurse or their transplant center. And before seeking medical care, they need to make arrangements to prevent possible transmission to healthcare workers. Now, this is not always possible, and if there's an emergency situation, they need to let the emergency medical personnel know that they may have 
COVID-19 so that things can be done to protect the emergency providers and the uh, clinicians that will take care of those patients once they get into a more organized medical setting. The CDC has recommended to suspend all non-essential travel to China, and that means that transplant recipients should not travel to China. Frequent hand washing or using a hand sanitizer is another thing that can be done. And then we get into masks, and masks are controversial. A surgical mask won't prevent aerosols, and an N95 mask that's not fit-tested is also imperfect. Perhaps the best thing about wearing a mask, if one chooses to do that, is that it prevents the person from touching their face, their nose, their mouth, and those are all mechanisms by which infections can be transmitted from the hand to those areas and then into the body. So what do you do if you have a solid organ transplant patient that presents with respiratory symptoms? And we have this all the time. We're in the middle of flu season, the middle of other respiratory viral seasons. We're seeing all kinds of patients presenting with respiratory symptoms, and solid organ transplant patients are some of those. So respiratory isolation as per usual protocol for everyone. Now, if there's special concern for COVID-19, place the patient in isolation, and infection control should be notified. The CDC has updated guidelines for infection control, and you should check those out if you're in the situation where you're anticipating that a patient will come in with COVID-19 to your hospital, to your center, as to what to do about that so that you can be prepared for that. Again, CDC has updated guidelines as to how to handle that. And testing is done via specific PCR test on nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal uh, samples from a swab. And again, it's important to know that the novel coronavirus is not detected using the standard respiratory virus multiplex tests. So the following people should not be used as donors. A person who returned from China or has been exposed to a patient with a confirmed or suspected COVID-19 within 14 days should not be accepted as a donor. Additionally, living donations should not be performed on a donor or a recipient who has returned from China or has been exposed to someone with confirmed or suspected COVID-19 in the past two weeks. And finally, the question as to what to do with a transplant recipient who has been to China. And the Transplantation Society suggests that all patients who have returned from China or have been exposed to a confirmed or suspected case of COVID-19 within the previous 14 days should avoid elective clinic visits and surgical procedures, including bronchoscopies, and that plans should be in place to get required lab testing of such patients during the 14 days in such a way as to avoid potential exposure of other patients. Additionally, they recommend that staff who have returned from China or have been exposed to a confirmed or suspected case within the last 14 days should follow hospital policies but should likely not care for transplant patients. Now, in terms of risk, the CDC has established a risk stratification, and high risk are people who have had really close contact with a person with symptomatic disease. Um, maybe they live in the same house, they're intimate partners, they're caregivers at home, and they have not used gloves and face masks. 
while living or caring for that person. At the other end of the spectrum are people with low risk. These are people that are in the same indoor environment, such as a classroom or a hospital waiting room, as a patient with a laboratory-confirmed case, and are in such a way for a prolonged period of time, but have not had really close contact with that person. And even further are people with no identifiable risk. So, for example, having an interaction with a patient with symptomatic laboratory-confirmed disease, but it's just really walking by that person or being briefly in the same room. Those are, at this point, considered by the CDC as having no identifiable risk. Now, I think these are useful landmarks as to risk stratification, but of course, more information will become available, allowing us to sharpen our knowledge as to what constitutes high risk, medium risk, low risk, and no risk. So. I think we need to look at these as provisional at this time. Well, I hope this has been helpful, and all this information is available from the American Society of Transplantation, the Transplantation Society, and the CDC on their websites. Thank you again for joining me for the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast, and I look forward to hearing your questions and your thoughts on Twitter or by email.